Section 22 of Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Words for Pictures Number 1 Harlequin A signboard painted on copper, signed W. Evans, London, circa 1820. Harlequin dances, and, over the park, surely there is thunder brooding. His figure stands out bright, large, and fantastic. But all around him is sultry twilight, and the clouds, pregnant with thunder, lower over him as he dances, and the elms are dim with unusual shadow. There is a tiny river in the dim distance. Under one of the nearest elms you may descry a square tomb topped with an urn. What lord or lady underlies it? I know not. Harlequin dances. Sheathed in his gay suit of red and green and yellow lozenges, he ambles lightly over the gravel. At his feet lie a tambourine and a mask. Brown ferns fringe his pathway. With one hand he clasps the baton to his hip, with the other he points mischievously to his forehead. He wears a flat, loose cap of yellow. There is a ruff about his neck and a pair of fine buckles to his shoes. And he always dances. He has his back to the thunderclouds. But there is that in his eyes which tells us that he has seen them and that he knows their presage. He is afraid. Yet he dances. Never, howsoever, slightly swerves he, see, from his right posture nor fail his feet in their pirouette. All a merveille. Nor fades the smile from his face, though he smiles through the tarnished air of a sultry twilight, under the shadow of impending storm. Number 2 The Garden of Love A Painting by Rubens in the Prado here they are met, here, by the balustrade, these lords and lusty ladies are met, to romp and wanton, in the fullness of love, under the solstice of a noon in midsummer. Water gushes in fantastic arcs from the grotto, making a cold music to the emblazoned air, while a breeze swells the sun-shot satin of every lady's skirt and tosses the ringlets that hang like bunches of yellow grapes on either side of her brow, and stirs the plumes of her gallant. But the very breeze is laden with heat, and the fountain's noise does but wet the thirst of the grass, the flowers, the trees. The earth sulks under the burden of the unmerciful sun. Love itself, one had said, would be languid here, pale and supine, and, faintly sighing for things past or for future things, would sink into siesta. But, behold, these are no ordinary lovers. The gushing fountains are likelier to run dry there in the grotto than they to falter in their redundant energy. These sanguine lords and ladies crave not an instant's surcease. They are tyrants and termagants of love. If they are thus at noon, here under the sun's rays, what, one wonders, must be their manner in the banqueting hall, when the tapers gleam adown the long tables, and the fruits are stripped of their rinds, and the wine brims over the goblets, all to the music of viols. Somehow one cannot imagine them anywhere but in this sunlight. To it they belong. They are creatures of nature pagans untamed, lawless, and unabashed. For all they are robed in crimson and saffron, and are with such fine pearls necklaced, these dames do exhale from their exuberant bodies the essence of a quite primitive and simple era. But for the ease of their deportment in their frippery, they might be maenads in masquerade. They have nothing of the coyness that civilization fosters in women, are as fearless and unsophisticated as men. A wooing were wasted on them, for they have no sense of antagonism, 
and seek not by any means to elude men. They meet men even as rivers meet the sea, even as, when fresh water meets salt water in the estuary, the two tides revolve in eddies and leap up in foam. So do these men and women laugh and wrestle in the rapture of concurrence. How different from the first embrace which marks the close of a wooing, that moment when the man seeks to conceal his triumph under a semblance of humility, and the woman her humiliation under a pretty air of patronage. Here, in the garden of love, they have none of those spiritual reservations and pretenses, nor is here any savour of fine romance. Nothing is here but the joy of satisfying a physical instinct a joy that expresses itself not in any exaltation of words or thoughts, but in mere romping. See, some of the women are chasing one another through the grotto. They are rushing headlong under the fountain. What though their finery be soaked? Anon, they will come out and throw themselves on the grass, and the sun will quickly dry them. Leave them, then, to their riot." Look upon these others who sit and stand here in a voluptuous bevy, hand in hand under the brazen sun, or flaunt to and fro lolling in one another's arms and laughing in one another's faces, and see how closely above them hover the winged ones. One, upside down in the air, sprinkles them with rose leaves. Another waves over them a blazing torch. Another tries to frighten them with his unarrowed bow. Another yet has dared to descend into the group. He nestles his fat cheek on a lady's lap and is not rebuked. These little chubbies know they are privileged to play and pranks here. Doubtless they love to be on duty in this garden, for here they are patted and petted and have no real work to do. At close of day, when they fly back to their mother, there is never an unmated name in the report they bring her, and she, belike, being pleased with them, allows them to sit up late, and to have each a slice of ambrosia and a sip of nectar. But elsewhere they have hard work, and often fly back in dread of Venus's anger. At that other balustrade, where Watteau, remembering this one, painted for us Plaisir du Val, how often they have lain in ambush, knowing that, were one of them to show but the tip of his wings, those sedate and minyard masqueraders would faint for very shame, yet ever hoping that they might, by their unseen presence, turn that punctilio of flirtation into love, and always... They have flown back from Dulwich unrequited, for all the pains they had taken, and pouting that Venus should ever send them on so hard an errand. But a day in this garden is always, for them, a dear holiday. They live in dread lest Venus discover how superfluous they are here. And so, knowing that the hypocrite's first dupe must be himself, they are always pretending to themselves that they are of some use. See that child yonder, perched on the balustrade, reading aloud from a scroll the praise of love, as earnestly as though his congregation were of infidels, and that other to the side, pushing two lovers along, as though they were the veriest laggards. The torch-bearer, too, and the archer, and the sprinkler of rose-leaves, they are all, after their kind, trying to persuade themselves that they are needed, all but he who leans over and nestles his fat cheek on the lady's lap as fondly and confidingly as though she were his mother. And truly the lady is very like his mother, so indeed are all the other ladies. Strange! In all their faces is an uniformity of divine splendor. Can it be that Venus, impatient of mere sequences of lovers, has obtained leave of Jove to multiply herself, and that, to-day, by a wild coincidence, her every incarnation has trysted an adorer to this same garden? Look closely. It must be so. Hush! Let us keep her secret. Number 3 
Ariane et Dionyse, a painting by Paul Bergeron, 1740. Pauvrette! No wonder she is startled. All came on her so suddenly. A moment since she was alone on this island. Theseus had left her. Her lover had crept from her couch as she lay sleeping, and had sailed away with his comrades, noiselessly, before the sun rose and woke her. From the top of yonder hillock she had seen the last sail of his argosy fading over the sea-line. Vainly she had waved her arms, and vainly her cries had echoed through all the island. She had run distraught through the valleys, the goats scampering before her to their own rocks. She had strayed wildly weeping along the shore, and the very sky had seemed to mock her. At length, spent with sorrow and wan with her tears, she had lain upon the sand. Above her, the cliff sloped gently down to the shore, and all around her was the hot noontide, and no sound save the rustling of the sea over the sand. Theseus had left her. The sea had taken him from her. Let the sea take her in its tide. Suddenly, what was that? She leapt up and listened. Voices, voices, the loud clash of cymbals. She looked round for some place to hide in. Too late. Some man, goat or man, came bounding towards her down the cliff. Another came after him. Then others, a whole company, and with them many naked, abominable women, laughing and shrieking and waving leafy wands as they rushed down towards her. And in their midst, in a brazen chariot, drawn by panthers, sped one whose yellow hair streamed far behind him in the wind. And from his chariot he sprang and stood before her. But she shrinks from his smile. She shrinks from the riot and ribaldry that encompass her. She is but a young bride whom the bridegroom has betrayed, and she would fain be alone in the bitterness of her anguish and her humiliation. Why have they come, these creatures who are stamping and reeling round her, these flushed women who clap the cymbals, and these wild men with the hoofs and the horns of goats? How should they comfort her? She is not of their race, no, nor even of their time. She stands among them, just as Bergeron saw her, a delicate, timid figurine du dix-huitième siècle. With her powdered hair and her hooped skirt and her stiff bodice of rose silk, she seems more fit for the consolations of some old monsignore than for the homage of these frenzied pagans and the amorous regard of their master. At him, pressing her shut fan to her lips, she is gazing across her shoulder. With one hand she seems to ward him from her. Her whole body is bent to flight. But she is afeard of her own feet. She is well enough educated to know that he who smiles at her is no mortal, but Bacchus himself, the very lord of Noxus. He stands before her, the divine debauchee, semiferis frontem circumdatus uvis. And all around her, a waif on his territory, are the symbols of his majesty and his power. It is in his honor that the ivy trails down the cliff, and are not the yews and the firs and the fig trees that overshadow the cliff's edge all sacred to him? And the vines beyond, are they not all his? His four panthers are clawing the sand, and four tipsy satyrs hold them, the impatient beasts, by their bridles. Another satyr drags to execution a goat that he has caught cropping the vine, and in his slanted eyes one can see thirst for the blood of his poor cousin. The maenads are dancing in one another's arms, and their tresses are coiled and crowned with tiny serpents. One of them kneels apart, sucking a great wine-skin. And yonder, that old cupster, Selenus, that horrible old favorite, wobbles along on a donkey, and would tumble off, you may be sure, were he not upheld by two fairly sober satyrs. But the eyes of Ariadne are fixed only on the smooth-faced god, 
see how he smiles back at her with that lascivious condescension which is all that a god's love can be for a mortal girl in his hand he holds a long thyrsus behind him is borne aloft a chaplet of seven gold stars ariadne is but a little waif in a god's power not theseus himself could protect her one tap of the god's wand and lo she too would be filled with the frenzy of worship and with a wild cry would join the dancers his for ever but the god is not unscrupulous he would fain win her by gentle and fair means even by wedlock that chaplet of seven stars is his bridal offering why should not she accept it why should she be coy of his desire it is true that he drinks but in time maybe a wife might be able to wean him from the wineskin and from the low company he affects that will be for time to show and meanwhile how brilliant a match not even pasiphae her mother ever contemplated for her such splendour in her great love ariadne risked her whole future by eloping with theseus for her the daughter of a far mightier king than aegeus and on the distaff side the granddaughter of apollo even marriage with theseus would have been a mesalliance and now here is a chance a chance most marvellous of covering her silly escapade she will be sensible i think though she is still a little frightened she will accept this god's suit if only to pique theseus theseus who for all his long tedious anecdotes of how he slew procrustes and the bull of marathon and the sow of cromion would even now lie slain or starving in her father's labyrinth had she not taken pity on him yes it was pity she felt for him she never loved him and then to think that he a mere mortal dared to cast her off oh it is too absurd it is too monstrous number four peter the dominican a painting by giovanni bellini in the national gallery credo in dominum were the words this monk wrote in the dust of the high road as he lay a-dying there of cavina's dagger and they according to the dominican record were presently washed away by his own blood rapida profusio sui sanguinis delevit professionem suoe fidei yet they had not been written in vain on cavina himself their impression was less delible for did he not submit himself to the church and was he not after absolution received into that monastery which his own victim had founded here before this picture by bellini one looks instinctively for the three words in the dust they are not yet written there for scarcely indeed has the dagger been planted in the saint's breast but here to the right on this little scroll of parchment that hangs from a fence of osiers there are some words written and one stoops to decipher them ioannis bellinus fecit now had the saint and his brother dominican not been waylaid on their journey they would have passed by this very fence and would have stooped as we do to decipher the scroll and would have very much wondered who was bellinus and what it was that he had done the woodman and the shepherd in the olive grove by the roadside the cowherds by the well yonder they have seen the scroll i dare say but they are not scholars enough to have read its letters cavina and his comrade in arms lying in wait here probably did not observe it so intent were they for that pious and terrible inquisitor who was to pass by how their hearts must have leapt when they saw him at length with his companion coming across that little arched bridge from the town a conspicuous unmistakable figure clad in the pied frock of his brotherhood and wearing the familiar halo above his closely shorn pate 
Cavina stands now over the fallen saint, planting the short dagger in his heart. The other Dominican is being chased by Cavina's comrade, his face wreathed in a bland smile, his hands stretched childishly before him. Evidently, he is quite unconscious how grave his situation is. He seems to think that this pursuit is merely a game, and that if he touch the wood of the olive trees first, he will have won, and that then it will be his turn to run after this man in the helmet. Or does he know, perhaps, that this is but a painting, and that his pursuer will never be able to strike him, though the chase be kept up for many centuries? In any case, his smile is not at all seemly or dramatic. And even more extraordinary is the behavior of the woodmen and the shepherds and cowherds. Murder is being done within a yard or two of them, and they pay absolutely no attention. How Tacitus would have delighted in this example of the inertia rusticorum! It is a great mistake to imagine that dwellers in quiet districts are more easily excited by any event than are dwellers in packed cities. On the contrary, the very absence of sensations produces an atrophy of the senses. It is the constant supply of sensations which creates a real demand for them in cities. Suppose, in our day, some specially unpopular clergyman were martyred at the corner of Fenchurch Street, how the same old crush would be intensified. But here, in this quiet glade, twixt Milan and Como, on this quiet, sun-steeped afternoon in early spring, with a horrible outrage being committed under their very eyes, these callous clowns pursue their absurd avocations, without so much as resting for one moment to see what is going on. Cavina plants the dagger methodically, and the Inquisitor himself is evidently filled with that intense self-consciousness which sustains all martyrs in their supreme hour, and makes them, it may be, insensible to actual pain. One feels that this martyr will write his motto in the dust with a firm hand. His whole comportment is quite exemplary. What irony that he should be unobserved! Even we, posterity, think far less of St. Peter than of Bellini when we see this picture. St. Peter is no more to us than the blue harmony of those little hills beyond, or than that little sparrow perched on a twig in the foreground. After all, there have been so many martyrs, and so many martyrs named Peter, but so few great painters. The little screed on the fence is no mere vain anachronism. It is a sly, rather malicious symbol. Periit Petrus, Bilinus Fecit, as who should say. Number 5. L'Oiseau Bleu, a painting on silk by Charles Condor. Over them, ever over them, floats the blue bird. And they, the ennuyé and ennuyant, the ennuyante and the ennuyé, these Parisians of 1830 are lolling in a charmed, charming circle, whilst two of their order, the young Duc de Bellavie et Profit Perdu, with the girl to whom he has but recently been married, move hither or thither vaguely, their faces upturned, making vain efforts to lure down the elusive creature. The haze of very early morning pervades the garden, which is the scene of their faint aspiration. One cannot see very clearly there. The ladies' furbelows are blurred against the foliage, and the lilac bushes loom through the air as though they were white clouds full of rain. One cannot see the ladies' faces very clearly. One guesses them, though, to be supercilious and smiling, all with the curved lips and the raised eyebrows of experience. For in their time all these ladies, and all their lovers with them, have tried to catch this same blue bird, and have been full of hope that it would come fluttering down to them at last. Now they are tired of trying, knowing that to try were foolish and of no avail. Yet it is pleasant for them to see, as here, others intent on the old pastime. 
Perhaps, who knows, some day the bird will be trapped. Ah, look, Monsieur le Duc almost touched its wing. Well for him, after all, that he did not more than that. Had he caught it and caged it and hung the gilt cage in the boudoir of Madame la Duchesse, doubtless the bird would have turned out to be but a moping, drooping, molting creature with not a song to its little throat. Doubtless the blue colour is but dye, and would soon have faded from wings and breast. And see, Madame la Duchesse looks a shade fatigued. She must not exert herself too much. Also, the magic hour is all but over. Soon there will be sunbeams to dispel the dawn's vapour, and the bluebird, with the sun sparkling on its wings, will have soared away out of sight. Allons! The little rogue is still at large. Number 6. Macbeth and the Witches. A painting by Corot in the Hertford House Collection. Look across the plain yonder, those three figures, dark and gaunt against the sky. Who are they? What are they? One of them is pointing with rigid arm towards the gnarled trees that, from the hillside, stretch out their storm-broken boughs and ragged leaves against the sky. Shifting thither, my eye discerns through the shadows two horsemen, riding slowly down the incline. Hush! I hold up a warning finger to my companion lest he move. On what strange and secret tryst have we stumbled? They must not know they are observed. Could we creep closer up to them? Nay, the plain is so silent they would hear us, and so barren they would surely see us. Here, under cover of this rock, we can crouch and watch them. We discern now more clearly those three expectants. One of them has a cloak of faded blue. It is fluttering in the wind. Women or men are they? Scarcely human they seem inauspicious beings from some world of shadows magically arisen through the platform of broken rock whereon they stand the air around even the fair sky above is fraught by them with i know not what of subtle bale one would say they had been waiting here for many days motionless eager but not impatient knowing that at this hour the two horsemen would come and we it is strange, have we not, ere now, beheld them, waiting? In some waking dream, surely we have seen them, and now dimly recognize them. And the two horsemen, forcing their steeds down the slope, them too we have seen, even so. The light, through a break in the trees, faintly reveals them to us. They are accoutred in black armor. They seem not to be yet aware of the weird figures confronting them across the plain. But the horses, with some sharper instinct, are aware and afraid, straining, quivering. One of them throws back its head, but dares not whinny. As though under some evil spell, all nature seems to be holding its breath. Stealthily, noiselessly, I turn the leaves of my catalogue, Macbeth and the witches, why, of course. Of the two horsemen, which is Macbeth, which Banquo? Though we peer intently, we cannot, in those distant shadows, distinguish which is he that shall be king hereafter, which is he that shall merely beget kings. It is mainly in virtue of this very vagueness and mystery of manner that the picture is so impressive. An illustration should stir our fancy, leaving its scope and freedom. Most illustrations, being definite, do but affront us. Usually Shakespeare is illustrated by some Englishman overawed by the poet's repute, and incapable of treating him, as did Corot, vaguely and offhand. Shakespeare expressed himself through human and superhuman characters, Therefore, in England, none but a painter of figures would dare illustrate him. Had Corot been an Englishman, this landscape would have had nothing to do with Shakespeare. Luckily, as an alien, he was untrammeled by piety to the poet, 
he could turn Shakespeare to his own account. In this picture, obviously, he was creating, and only in a secondary sense illustrating. For him, the landscape was the thing. Indeed, the five little figures may have been inserted by him as an afterthought to point and balance the composition. Vaguely, he remembered hearing of Macbeth, or reading it in some translation. Ce s'expère un beau talent très romantique. Hugo, he would not have attempted to illustrate, but s'expère, why not? And so the little figures came upon the canvas, dim sketches. Charles Lamb disliked theatrical productions of Shakespeare's plays because of the constraint thus laid on his imagination. But in the theatre, at least, we are diverted by movement, recompensed by the sound of the poet's words, and, maybe, by human intelligence interpreting his thoughts. Whereas from a definite painting of Shakespearean figures, we get nothing but an equivalent for the mime's appearance, nothing but the painter's bare notion, probably quite incongruous with our notion, of what these figures ought to look like. Take Macbeth as an instance. From a definite painting of him, what do we get? At worst, the impression of a kilted man with a red beard and red knees brandishing a claymore. At best, a sombre barbarian doing nothing in particular. In either case, all the atmosphere, all the character, all the poetry, all that makes Macbeth live for us is lost utterly. If these definite illustrations of Shakespeare's human figures affront us, how much worse is it when an artist tries his hand at the figures that are superhuman? Imagine an English illustrator's projection of the weird sisters, with long grey beards duly growing on their chins, and be like one of them duly holding in her hand a pilot's thumb. It is because Corot had no reverence for Shakespeare's text, because he was able to create in his own way, with scarcely a thought of Shakespeare, an independent masterpiece, that this picture is worthy of its theme. The largeness of the landscape, in proportion to the figures, seems to show us the tragedy in its essential relation to the universe. We see the heath lying under infinity, under true sky and winds. No hint of the theatre is there. All is as the poet may have conceived it in his soul. And for us, Corot's brushwork fills the place of Shakespeare's music. Time has tessellated the surface of the canvas, but beauty, intangible and immortal, dwells in its depths safely, dwells there even as it dwells in the works of Shakespeare, though the folios be foxed and seared. The longer we gaze, the more surely does the picture elude us and enthrall us, steeping us in that tragedy of the fruitless crown and barren scepter. We forget all else, watching the unkind witches as they await him whom they shall undo, driving him to deeds he dreams not of, and beguiling him at length to his doom. Against the set of sun they stand forth, while he who shall be king hereafter, with the comrade whom he shall murder, rides down to them, guileless of aught that shall be. Privy to his fate, we experience a strange compassion. Anon, the fateful colloquy will begin. All hail Macbeth, the unearthly voices will be crying across the heath. Can nothing be done? Can we stand quietly here while... Nay, hush, we are powerless. These witches, if we tried to thwart them, would swiftly blast us. There are things with which no mortal must meddle. There are things which no mortal must behold. Come away. So, casting one last backward look across the heath, we, under cover of the rock, steal fearfully away across the parquet floor of the gallery. Number 7. Carlotta Breezy, A Colored Print It is not among the cardboard glades of the King's Theatre, nor, indeed, behind any footlights, 
but in a real and twilight garden that greasy gimp-waisted sylphid here skips for posterity to her right the roses on the trellis are not paper roses one guesses them quite fragrant and that is a real lake in the distance and those delicate pale trees around it they too are quite real yes surely this is the garden of greasy's villa at uxbridge and her guests quoting lord byron's al fresco nothing more delicious have tempted her to a daring by-show of her genius to her left there is a stone cross which has been draped by one of the guests with a scarf bearing the legend giselle it is sunday evening i fancy after dinner cannot one see the guests a group entranced by its privilege the ladies with bandeaux and with little shawls toward the dew from their shoulders the gentlemen d'orsayesque all forgetting to puff the cigars which the ladies this once have suffered them to light one sees them there but they are only transparent phantoms between us and greasy not interrupting our vision as she dances the peerless greasy one fancies that she is looking through them at us looking across the ages to us who stand looking back at her her smile is but the formal cupid's bow of the ballerina but i think there is a clairvoyance of posterity in the large eyes and in the pose a self-consciousness subtler than merely that of one who dancing leads all men by the heartstrings a something is there which is almost shyness clearly she knows it to be thus that she will be remembered feels this to be the moment of her immortality her form is all but in profile swaying far forward but her face is full turned to us her arms float upon the air below the stark ruff of muslin about her waist her legs are as a tilted pair of compasses one point in the air the other impinging the ground one tiptoe poised ever so lightly upon the earth as though the muslin wings at her shoulders were not quite strong enough to bear her up to the sky so she remains hovering betwixt two elements a creature exquisitely ambiguous being neither aerial nor of the earth she knows that she is mortal yet she is conscious of apotheosis she knows that she though herself must perish is imperishable for she sees us her posterity gazing fondly back at her she is touched and we a little envious of those who did once see greasy plain always shall find solace in this pretty picture of her holding it to be for all the artificiality of its convention as much more real as it is prettier than the stringent ballet girls of Degas. Number 8. Hote, a colored drawing by Hokusai. What monster have we here? Who is he that sprawls thus, ventri rotund, against the huge oozing wineskin? Wide his nose narrowly slit his eyes and with little teeth he smiles at us through a beard of bright russet a beard soft as the russet coat of a squirrel and sprouting in several tiers according to the several chins that ascend behind it from his chest nude he is but for a few dark twists of drapery one dimpled foot is tucked under him the other caught before him with a bifurcated fist such is his hand he pillows the bald dome of his head he seems to be very happy sprawling here in the twilight the wine oozes from the wine-skin but he replete takes no heed of it on the ground before him are a few almond blossoms blown there by the wind he is snuffing their fragrance i think who is he Hote, you tell me, god of increase, god of the cornfields and rice-fields, patron of all little children in Japan, a blend of Dionysus and Santa Claus. 
So, then his look belies him. He is far too fat to care for humanity, too gross to be divine. I suspect he is but some self-centred sage whom Hokusai beheld with his own eyes in a devious corner of Yedo. A hermit he is, surely, one not more affable than Diogenes, yet wiser than he, being at peace with himself and finding, as it were, the honest man without, emerging from his own tub, a complacent Diogenes, a Diogenes who has put on flesh. Looking at him, one is reminded of that over-swollen monster gourd which, to young Neville Beauchamp and his marquise, as they saw it from their river-boat, hanging heavily down the bank on one greenish-yellow cheek, in prolonged contemplation of its image in the mirror below, so sinisterly recalled Monsieur le Marquis. But to us this self-adored, gross-bald Cupid has no such symbolism, and we revel as wholeheartedly as he in his monstrous contours. I am very beautiful, he seems to murmur, and we endorse the boast. At the same time, we transfer to Hokusai the credit, which this glutton takes all to himself. It is Hokusai who made him, delineating his paunch in that one soft, summery curve, and echoing it in the curve of the wineskin that swells around him. Himself, as a living man, were too loathsome for words. But here, thanks to Hokusai, he is not less admirable than Phaedius's Hermes, or the Discobolus himself. Yes, swathed in his abominable surplusage of bulk, he is as fair as any statue of a stricted god or athlete that would suffer not by incarnation. Presently we forget again that he is unreal. He seems alive to us, and somehow he is still beautiful. It is a beauty, like that of Mona Lisa, wrought out from within upon the flesh, the adipose deposit, little cell by cell, of strange thoughts and fantastic reveries and exquisite passions. It is the beauty of real fatness, that fatness which comes from within and reacts on the soul that made it, until soul and body are one deep harmony of fat, that fatness which gave us the geniality of Silenus, of the late Major O'Gorman, which soothes all nerves in its owner, and creates the earthy, truistic wisdom of Sancho Panza, of Françoise Sarcet, which makes a man selfish because there is so much of him, and venerable because he seems to be a knoll of the very globe we live on, and lazy in as much as the form of government under which he lives is an absolute gastrocracy, the belly tyrannizing over the members whom it used to serve, and wielding its power as unscrupulously as none but a promoted slave could. Such is the true fatness. It is not to be confounded with mere stoutness. Contrast with this Japanese sage, that orgulous Hidalgo, who, in black velvet, defies modern Prussia from one of Velasquez's canvases in Berlin. Huge is that other, and gross, and so puffed his cheeks are that the light cast up from below strives vainly to creep over them to his eyes, like a tourist vainly striving to creep over a boulder on a mountainside. Yet is he not of the hierarchy of true fatness. He bears his bulk proudly, and would sit well any charger that were strong enough to bear him, and, if such a steed were not in stables, would walk the distance swingingly, he is a man of action, a fighter, an insolent dominator of men and women. In fact, he is merely a stout man, uniform with Porthos and Arthur Orton and Sir John Falstaff, spiced, like them, with charlatanism and braggadocio, and not the less a fine fellow for that. Indeed, such bulk as his and theirs is in the same kind as that bulk which, lesser in degree, is indispensable to greatness in practical affairs. No man, as Prince Bismarck declared, is to be trusted in statecraft until he can show a stomach. A lack of stomach betokens lack of mental solidity, of humanity, 
of capacity for going through with things. And these three qualities are essential to statesmanship. Poets and philosophers can afford to be thin, cannot, indeed, afford to be otherwise, inasmuch as poetry and philosophy thrive but in the clouds aloft, and a stomach ballasts you to earth. Such ballast the statesman must have. Thin statesmen may destroy, but construct they cannot. Have achieved chaos, but cosmos never. But why prate history, why evoke phantoms of the past, when we can gaze on this exquisitely concrete thing, this glad and simple creature of Hokusai? Let us emulate his calm, enjoy his enjoyment as he sprawls before us, pinguis iners placidus, in the pale twilight. Let us not seek to identify him as god or mortal, nor guess his character from his form. Rather, let us take him as he is, for all time, the perfect type of fatness. Lovely and excessive monster, monster immeasurable. What belt could inclip you? What blade were long enough to prick the heart of you? Number 9. A Visit. A painting by George Moreland in the Hertford House Collection. Never, I suppose, was a painter less maladif in his work than Moreland, that lover of simple and sunbright English scenes. Probably this picture of his is all cheerful in intention, yet the effect of it is saddening. Superficially, the scene is cheerful enough. Our first impression is of a happy English home, of childish high spirits and pretty manners. We note how genial a lady is the visitor, and how eager the children are to please. One of them trips respectfully forward, a wave of yellow curls, fresh and crisp from the brush, a rustle of white muslin, fresh and crisp from the wash. She is supported on one side by her grown-up sister, on the other by her little brother, who displays the nectarine already given to him by the kind lady. Splendid in far-reaching furbelows, that kind lady holds out both her hands, beaming encouragement. On her ample lap is a little open basket with other ripe nectarines in it, one for every child. Modest, demure, the girl trips forward as though she were dancing a quadrille, in the garden, just beyond the threshold, stand two smaller sisters, shyly awaiting their turn. They, too, are in their Sunday best, and on the tiptoe of excitement, infant coryphase, in whom, as they stand at the wings, stage fright is overborne by the desire to be seen and approved. I fancy they are rehearsing under their breath the yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and the I thank you, ma'am, very much, which their grown-up sister has been drilling into them during the hurried toilet they have just been put through in honour of this sudden call. How anxious their mother is during the ceremony of introduction! How keenly, as she sits there, she keeps her eyes fixed on the visitor's face! Maternal anxiety, in that gaze, seems to be intensified by social humility, for this is no ordinary visitor. It is some great lady of the county, very rich, of high fashion, come from a great mansion in a great park, bringing fruit from one of her own many hothouses. That she has come at all is an act of no slight condescension, and the mother feels it. Even so did homely Mrs. Fairchild look up to Lady Noble. Indeed, I suspect that this visitor is Lady Noble herself and that the Fairchilds themselves are neighbours of this family. These children have been coached to say, Yes, my lady, and no, my lady, and I thank you, my lady, very much, and their mother has already been hoping that Mrs. Fairchild will happily pass through the lane and see the emblazoned yellow chariot at the wicket. But just now she is all maternal. These be my jewels, See with what pride she fingers the sampler, embroidered by one of her girls, 
knowing well that spoilt miss augusta noble could not do such embroidery to save her life that life which through her promethean naughtiness in playing with fire she was soon to lose other exemplary samplers hang on the wall yonder on the mantel-shelf stands a slate with an ink-pot and a row of tattered books and other tokens of industry the schoolroom beyond a doubt lady noble has expressed a wish to see the children here in their own haunt and her hostess has led the way hither somewhat flustered gasping many apologies for the plainness of the apartment a plain apartment it is dark bare-boarded dingy-walled and not merely a material gloom pervades it there is a spiritual gloom also the subtly oppressive atmosphere of a room where life has not been lived happily though these children are cheerful now it is borne in on us by the atmosphere as preserved for us by moreland's master hand that their life is a life of appalling dismalness even if we had nothing else to go on this evidence of our senses were enough but we have other things to go on we know well the way in which children of this period were brought up we remember the life of the fairchild family those putative neighbours of this family in any case its obvious contemporaries and we know that the life of those hapless little prigs was typical of child life in the dawn of the nineteenth century depend on it this family whatever its name may be the thompsons i conjecture is no exception to the dismal rule in this schoolroom every day is a day of oppression of forced endeavour to reach an impossible standard of piety and good conduct a day of tears and texts of texts quoted and tears shed incessantly from morning unto evening prayers after morning prayers read by papa breakfast the bread and butter of which for the children this meal consists must be eaten slowly in a silence by them unbroken except with prompt answers to such scriptural questions as their parents who have ham and eggs may now and again address to them after breakfast the catechism heard by mamma after the catechism a hymn to be learnt after the repetition of this hymn arithmetic calligraphy the use of the globes at noon a decorous walk with papa who for their benefit discourses on the general depravity of mankind in all countries after the fall occasionally pausing by the way to point for them some moral of nature after a silent dinner the little girls sew under the supervision of mamma or of the grown-up sister or of both these authorities till the hour in which if they have sewn well they reap permission to play quietly with their doll a silent supper after which they work samplers another hymn to be learnt and repeated evening prayers bedtime good night dear papa good night dear mamma such depend on it is the thompson's curriculum what a painful sequence of pictures a genre painter might have made of it let us be thankful that we see the thompsons only in this brief interlude of their life tearless and unpinafored in this hour of strange excitement glorying in that sunday best which on sundays is to them but a symbol of intenser gloom but their very joy is in itself tragic it reveals to us in a flash the tragedy of their whole existence that so much joy should result from mere suspension of the usual regime the sight of lady noble the anticipation of a nectarine for us there is no comfort in the knowledge that their present degree of joy is proportionate to their usual degree of gloom that for them the law of compensation drops into the scale of these few moments an exact counterweight of joy to the misery accumulated in the scale of all their other moments we who do not live their life who regard lady noble as a mere hecuba and who would accept one of her nectarines only in sheer politeness 
cannot rejoice with them that do rejoice thus, can but pity them for all that has led up to their joy. We may reflect that the harsh system on which they are reared will enable them to enjoy life with infinite gusto when they are grown up, and that it is, therefore, a better system than the indulgent modern one. We may reflect further that it produces a finer type of man or woman, less selfish, better-mannered, more capable and useful. The pretty grown-up daughter here, leading her little sister by the hand, so gracious and modest in her mien, so sunny and affectionate, so obviously wholesome and high-principled, is she not a walking testimonial to the system? Yet to us the system is not the less repulsive in itself. Its results may be what you please, but its practice were impossible. We are too tender, too sentimental. We have not the nerve to do our duty to children, nor can we bear to think of anyone else doing it. To children we can do nothing but spoil them, nothing but bless their hearts and coddle their souls, taking no thought for their future welfare. And we are justified, maybe, in our flight to this opposite extreme. Nobody can read one line ahead of the book of fate. No child is guaranteed to become an adult. Any child may die tomorrow. How much greater for us the sting of its death if its life shall not have been made as pleasant as possible? What if its short life shall have been made as unpleasant as possible? Conceive the remorse of Mrs. Thompson here if one of her children were to die untimely, if one of them were stricken down now, before her eyes, by this surfeit of too sudden joy. However, we do not fancy that Mrs. Thompson is going to be thus afflicted, we believe that there is a saving antidote in the cup of her children's joy. There is something, we feel, that even now prevents them from utter ecstasy. Some shadow, even now, hovers over them. What is it? It is not the mere atmosphere of the room, so oppressive to us. It is something more definite than that, and even more sinister. It looms aloft, monstrously, like one of those grotesque actual shadows which a candle may cast athwart walls and ceiling. Whose shadow is it, we wonder, and, wondering, become sure that it is Mr. Thompson's papa's. The papa of Georgian children. We know him well, that awfully massive and mysterious personage, who seemed ever to his offspring so remote when they were in his presence, so frighteningly near when they were out of it. In Mrs. Turner's cautionary stories in verse, he occurs again and again. Mr. Fairchild was a perfect type of him. Mr. Bennet, when the Misses Lizzie, Jane, and Lydia were in pinafores, must have been another perfect type. We can reconstruct him, as he was then, from the many fragments of his awfulness which still clung to him when the girls had grown up. John Ruskin's father, too, if we read between the lines of Preterita, seems to have had much of the authentic monster in him. He, however, is disqualified as a type by the fact that he was an entirely honest merchant. For one of the most salient peculiarities in the true Georgian papa was his having apparently no occupation whatever, his being simply and solely a papa. Even in social life he bore no part. We never hear of him calling on a neighbor or being called on. Even in his own household he was seldom visible, except at their meals and when he took them for their walk, and when they were sent to be reprimanded, his children never beheld him in the flesh. Mamma, poor lady, careful of many other things, superintended her children unremittingly to keep them in the thorny way they should go. Hers the burden and heat of every day, hers to double the roles of Martha and Cornelia, that her husband might be left ever calmly aloof in that darkened room the study. There, in a high armchair, with one stout calf crossed over the other, immobile throughout the long hours, sate he propping a marble brow on a dexter finger of the same material. 
On the table beside him was a vase of flowers, daily replenished by the children, and a closed volume. It is remarkable that in none of the many woodcuts in which he has been handed down to us do we see him reading. He is always meditating on something he has just read. Occasionally he is fingering a portfolio of engravings, or leaning aside to examine severely a globe of the world. That is the nearest he ever gets to physical activity. In him we see the static embodiment of perfect wisdom and perfect righteousness. We take him at his own valuation, humbly. Yet we have a queer instinct that there was a time when he did not diffuse all this cold radiance of good example. Something tells us that he has been a sinner in his day, a rattler of the ivories at Almach's, and an ogler of wenches in the gardens of Vauxhall, a sanguine backer of the negro against the Suffolk bantam, and a devil of a fellow at boxing the watch and wrenching the knockers when bow-bells were chiming the small hours. Nor do we feel that he is a penitent. He is too Olympian for that. He has merely put these things behind him, has calmly, as a matter of business, transferred his account from the worldly bank to the heavenly. He has seen fit to become papa. As such, strong in the consciousness of his own perfection, he has acquired, gradually, quasi-divine powers over his children. Himself invisible, we know that he can always see them. Himself remote, we know that he is always with them and that always they feel his presence. He prevents them in all their ways. The Mormon eye is not more direly inevitable than he. Whenever they offend in word or deed, he knows telepathically, and fixes their punishment long before they are arraigned at his judgment seat. At this moment, as at all others, Mr. Thompson has his inevitable eye on his children and they know that it is on them. He is well enough pleased with them at this moment, but, alas, we feel that ere the sun sets they will have incurred his wrath. Presently Lady Noble will have finished her genial inspection, and have sailed back, under convoy of the mother and the grown-up daughter, to the parlour, there to partake of that special dish of tea which is even now being brewed for her. When the children are left alone, their pent excitement will overflow and wash them into disgrace. Belike they will quarrel over the nectarines. There will be bitter words, and a pinch, and a scratch, and a blow, screams, a scrimmage. The rout will be heard afar in the parlour. The grown-up sister will hasten back and be beheld suddenly, a quelling figure, on the threshold. "'For shame, Clara! Mary, I wonder at you! Henry, how dare you, sir! Silence, Ethel! Papa shall hear of this!' Flushed and rumpled, the guilty four will hang their heads, cowed by authority, and by it perversely reconciled one with another. Authority will bid them go upstairs this instant, there to shed their finery, and resume the drab garb of every day. From the bedroom windows they will see Lady Noble step into her yellow chariot and drive away. Envy, an inarticulate, impotent envy, will possess their hearts. Why cannot they be rich and grown up and bowed to by everyone? When the chariot is out of sight, envy will be superseded by the play instinct. Silently, in their hearts, the children will play at being Lady Noble. Mamma's voice will be heard on the stairs, rasping them back to the realities. Sullenly, they will go down to the schoolroom and resume their tasks. But they will not be able to concentrate their unsettled minds. The girls will make false stitches in the pillow slips which they have been hemming so neatly when the yellow chariot drove up to the front door, and Master Harry will be merely dazed by that page of the Delectus which he had almost got by heart. 
their discontent will be inspissated by the knowledge that they are now worse off than ever are in dire disgrace and that even now the grown-up sister is telling papa who knows already and has but awaited the formal complaint presently the grown-up sister will come into the schoolroom looking very grave children papa has something to say to you in the study to which quaking they will proceed an endless sermon awaits them the sin of covetousness will be expatiated on and the sins of discord and hatred and the eternal torment in store for every child who is guilty of them all four culprits will be in tears soon after the exordium before the peroration a graphic description of the lake of fire they will have become hysterical they will be sent supperless to bed on the morrow they will have to learn and repeat the chapter about cain and abel a week at least will have elapsed before they are out of disgrace such are the inevitable consequences of joy in a joyless life it were well for these children had the visit never been paid moreland i suppose discerned not of all this tragedy in his picture to him probably the thing was an untainted idol was but one of those placid homely scenes which he loved as dearly as could none but the brawler and vagabond that he was and yet and yet perhaps he did intend something of what we discern here he may have been thinking bitterly of his own childhood and of the home he ran away from End of section twenty two. Recording by Kirsten Weber. End of Yet Again by Max Beerbaum.